Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again and turn to 1 Corinthians 4, which is still on page 953. And it says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who says anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. The present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labour working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, let me mention a couple of things. The first is question time will occur immediately after the service. So do bear that in mind so you can be mindful of that and know what questions you'd like to ask. You have a sermon outline in your service sheet, which may be of use. Otherwise, let me pray Let's and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time spent together uh, praying, um, thinking and reflecting upon your word. As we reflect on these things, might we be sure in our minds 
that your church can only be built on the foundation of your son. And it is you who brings growth to your church. Amen. Well, every now and then a book comes out and does the rounds in Christian circles. And these are books that set out to on a how-to manage a church, or how to run a church, or how to grow a church. <clears throat> the congregation is uh, encouraged to buy and read the book, and then the book is read in small groups, and the church sets out to apply the methods outlined in the book in order to grow. The book may take models from businesses and elsewhere, and it takes those models and applies them to the church. Now in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been comparing the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. On the one hand, God's wisdom has exposed the wisdom of the world as foolishness. On the other hand, the wisdom of the world does not recognise God's wisdom. The world dismisses it as folly. And so Paul takes advantage of this strange juxtaposition, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And of course that which the wisdom of the world sees as foolish is a crucified God. And yet it's through the crucified Christ that the Father achieves his salvation for the world. And Paul's message to the Corinthians is not to place your confidence in the wisdom of men, but to place it in the power of God. Now the very fact that Paul has to say this to the Corinthians suggests it's a problem for them. They're flirting with the wisdom of the world. And so Paul is warning them away from the wisdom of the world and drawing them back to the wisdom of God. This is seen in the division of the church. In 3 verse Paul, 3 verse 4, Paul returns to a problem he has already referred to. Everyone has their favourite leaders. And they follow their favourite leaders at the expense of those who they do not like. But in 3, 5-9, to nine, Paul exposes the foolishness of their position. In Paul's analogy of the church, it's a field. And we see, first of all, there's a unity between the two leaders, Paul and Apollos. They work to the same goal. Paul plants, Apollos waters. They both play their part with the same purpose that the crop would grow. But the contribution they make to that same goal is distinct, it's different. If Paul planted, but Apollos wasn't there to water, Paul's work would be futile. Likewise, if Apollos watered, but Paul hadn't planted, what would Apollos be watering? They each play their part. 
but both Paul and Apollos' parts are put in their place when God is introduced. Only God gives the growth. Ultimately, the work is God's work. It's his gift, his power, his plan. Paul and Apollos are but God's servants. They will be rewarded for their service, but the church belongs to God and the glory belongs to him. Then in 10 to 15, Paul changes the analogy. Instead of a field, the church is now a building. The foundation is Christ, and Paul's emphatic that this is the only possible foundation. Paul then suggests six materials that the builders might choose to use. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The significance of these materials are only appreciated once we get to verse 13. The building is going to be tested, and it will be tested by fire. Gold, silver and precious stones, well, they will survive the fire, while wood, hay and straw will perish in it. And so Paul's point is that the building should be built with that which is imperishable and should not be built with material that cannot survive the fire. Now, in this context, and since in this context Paul has been comparing the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, we're to understand the imperishable as the wisdom of God and the perishable as the wisdom of the world. After all, the wisdom of the world is confined to this age and this age is passing away. The church is God's. It is his people. His means of gathering his people and teaching them to maturity. So it makes sense that it it is his wisdom that it's built with, not the wisdom of the world. I once heard a question asked of an itinerant evangelist. The question was this. How does he justify the use of donations to pay for a private plane? He went on to explain that I'm doing the Lord's work. And if I take commercial flights, it's a great strain. I need to be fresh, rested and ready to do his work. Now what's interesting about his responses is a stark contrast to what Jesus himself says in Matthew 8 verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now a helpful phrase here to understand the prosperity gospel is over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of what will happen in the last times. It's referring to the time when God will gather his people together and they will finally dwell with him. And at that point, all the promises that God has made will be fulfilled in all their fullness. So when people use the term eschatology, or when we come across it in a book, it simply means that time when God will dwell with his people and all the promises will be fulfilled. 
Now, to have an over-realized eschatology is to think that the promises, promises that are for them and that time are already ours. So it will be a time when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. But that is then, not now. We still live in the fallen world. To have an over-realized eschatology is to believe the Christian cannot suffer in this world and will always be healed when they pray for it. The new heavens and the new earth will be a time when there will be no hunger or thirst. But that's not how it is now. We still live in the fallen world. To have an over-realized eschatology is to believe that the Christian should always prosper. Now the Corinthians, they have an over-realized eschatology. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The Corinthians think they have everything. Then they look at Paul and he looks so pathetic. They believe they have the blessings of Christ. But their apostle does not have these blessings and they're ashamed of him. Paul says to them, if you really did reign, that would be great. Because the only way that they could possibly be reigning is if the last times had come then Paul and the apostles would also share in the same rule but that time hasn't come it isn't here Paul then goes on to explain the situation in verse 10 verse 10 begins with we are fools for Christ's sake there's a lot going on in this short phrase. The Corinthians have adopted worldly, worldly wisdom and they think Paul and the apostles are fools. This Paul recognises and it's partly why he uses the phrase we are fools. But also the wisdom of God is foolish as we've seen. Christ crucified is foolishness. So Paul describes him and the apostles as fools because they identify with the gospel and the gospel alone. They are happy to be considered foolish for the sake of the gospel. Then Paul compares the situation of the Corinthians. But you are wise in Christ. The wisdom they have is the wisdom of the world. A wisdom that, as we've already seen, will not pass on to the new age. That Paul adds in Christ reminds us that Paul does not doubt their position before Christ. Rather, he's trying to get them to be what they are. But also, there's an irony there. The wisdom they've adopted does not go hand to hand 
with being in Christ. And throughout that section, all the way up to verse 13, Paul continues in a similar way. But he explains his motivation is not to shame the Corinthians. He wishes them to change to be like him. To reflect the gospel, to be like Christ as they take up their cross. Now in one sense it's very hard to quantify the success of a church or the success of a Bible teacher. But at some point I guess we need to take stock. What's the success of a church and what's the success of a Bible teacher? Do you have a favourite Bible teacher? What happens if that favourite Bible teacher falls away? What if he were to have a nervous breakdown? What would happen if he was suspended and then later on found guilty of abuse in the workplace? What if he had an affair with another woman? What if he became an alcoholic which led to an early death? Or let's say maybe he didn't do anything wrong. Maybe he simply retired. Or maybe he simply died prematurely. These are all things that happen and have happened to pastors. And while this is extremely sad, in some cases disappointing, and not what we hope for, ultimately this does not need to shake our faith. Because our faith is not in our favourite Bible teacher. Bible teachers, they'll come and they'll go. And maybe more often than not, they will let us down. But the church is built on a much more solid foundation, one that will not fail. The strength of faith is not to be measured by how much we believe, but in the object in which our faith depends. And our faith is to be in Christ. Bible teachers will come and they will go, but Christ will remain. So the success of a church is not to be found in the latest how-to book. The success of a church is to be found in the faithfulness that God requires of his servants, whether they be the pastors or the members of the church. There's no point in having an over-realized eschatology if we fail to persevere to the end and miss out on the actual blessings that we've been promised. And so our desire should be fools, in the same way that Paul is. Fools because we trust in Christ crucified. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the commitment of Paul and his zeal for keeping your gospel untainted.
Can we pray, Lord, that we would be imitators of him, proud to be foolish for the sake of the wisdom of God. And particularly in this time, as it's still, uh, as your wisdom is still considered foolish, we pray, Lord, that we would not shy away of being considered fools, but instead, in all boldness, make your gospel clear. And as we do this, we pray, Lord, that we'd always recognise that it's through you that your church will grow. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make any comments in light of the things that we've been mentioning. So that time has arrived. Any thoughts, questions or comments? Yes, Nathan. Yeah, just looking so chapter three and so verses it seems like he's talking about leaders and then verse sixteen. Um isn't it because he's then switching to talk to the congregation in general. So is verse fifteen to be applied primarily to church? Okay, so let me just repeat that for the recording. So it seems that verse 15 he's been talking about the leaders. Then in verse 16 he switches to talk about the congregation. Uh, And what's going on there? Yeah, so I guess, I guess, I think what we've got to remember as we go through it, that he's talking to the Corinthians about the leaders. So when he's saying some follow Apollos, some follow Paul, his criticism isn't, and Paul's let us down because he's done this, and Apollos let us down to do this, and this is what Paul and Apollos should be doing. But he's trying to change the perspective of the Corinthians' perspective towards the leaders. So Paul and Apollos, they've not done anything wrong. Um, It's just that some people follow Paul, some people follow Apollos. um, But the perspective of the leaders needs to change. They need to think then in terms of... um, Actually, they're just God's servants. You should be following God. Then when you get to the building, I think... I think it continues in a similar vein, although I can see why you might think otherwise, in as far as the Corinthians are adopting the wisdom of God, sorry, the wisdom of the world, Paul and Apollos are 
using the wisdom of God to build, they are going to, so I guess in verse 14, crudely put, if the work that anyone was, has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. Kind of re- refers to Paulus and Paul. Well, I said, if anyone is burnt, work is burned up refers to the Corinthians work because they're think, dealing with the wisdom of the world so then in verse 16 he's saying the church you people are precious you're God's temple um, anyone who destroys that and undermines that is for it so I think that's how it flows well, yeah, it's in. I mean, uh, I guess. Well, I guess it's interesting, isn't it, with the whole church leaders thing? Because actually, why, how does a church grow? You know, think actually, what am I doing towards the growth of the church? Probably not pulling my weight. You know, how many. Um, visitors have I brought in compared to how many visitors you guys have brought in um, you're probably gotten a bit of advantage over me because you're spending a lot more time with non-Christians than I am um, I don't know but ultimately it's a bit yeah I, I think let's not think of church growth being achieved through the leaders apart from the fact that we've we've already affirmed today it's through the um, um, through God but actually this is something that we're all involved in uh, both congregation members and not so so yeah I think that's that fair enough time for another Yes. Yeah, so uh, just to repeat for the record, so verse 13, oh sorry, 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So what's that kind of looking like in the church? Is there a sort of a division? Um, so I think what's going on, and obviously it's, it's hard because we're kind of mirror reading. And I just guess just to explain mirror reading. So when you read a letter like Corinthians, you've only got half the story. So Paul's responding to what is happening, but he doesn't say what's happening because he knows what's happening and they know what's happening. So we're a little bit, um, we've only got one end of the conversation. But obviously when someone says, for example, like earlier on we said, when Paul says in chapter 4 verse 8, already you have all you want, already you've become rich, we can kind of read back in that, well, the Corinthians must think they are blessed by 
God and has an, and that's why we can conclude they've got a realized eschatology. So here I think we've got to do something similar. So I think the best thing to do is verse 13 is key in that it says what you build the church it with will be tested by fire. And then gold, silver, and precious stones we know will survive fire, whereas wood, hay, straw will be um, gone. Now, we've also talked about this idea that there is worldly wisdom being adopted in the Corinthians, and Paul's trying to encourage them to um, have godly wisdom, or the wisdom use the wisdom of God. So I don't know whether there's, um, yeah, so I guess, is there division in the church and some are using godly wisdom and some are using um, worldly wisdom? Or is it just as a church they've adopted worldly wisdom and therefore Paul's speaking to them and cutting through all that and saying, stop with your worldly wisdom, i.e. don't build with wood, hay and straw, but build with that. those things that are imperishable. I guess it's hard to know, but it's something in that realm, I think. Time for more? If there's a... Nope. Okay. We'll leave it there then. Unless. Okay. I'll go already. <laughs> this is where I should have left it there. Can you just reverse and Yes. Um, so, just for recording, the question relates to <clears throat> verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. goes on, but we, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute, disrepute. So I think what the commentator says, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I think what's going on is there's an awful lot of play on words. So verse 10, we are fools for Christ because you think we're foolish, partly because you're using worldly wisdom to critique us. And so you, you, you're making us look, and, and obviously worldly wisdom thinks that Christ crucified is foolishness. But there's a sense in that Paul saying, well, we are fools for Christ's sake because, yes, we do adopt 
the wisdom of God, which is foolishness. Um, so you perceive us to be fools. We're happy to be fools because we're fools in Christ's sake. But in contrast, and this is, I think it's, you think you're wise. And then the in Christ is, as Christians. But then there's this weird kind of connection is, but even though you're in Christ, your wisdom is a worldly wisdom, and that doesn't fit. You can't have worldly wisdom while you're in Christ. So yes, you're in Christ, but being in Christ, you should be fools like we're fools, and you should follow um, the foolishness of God, not the wisdom of the world. So it, it, I think it's really an odd way of saying it, that you're wise in Christ. I think naturally reading it, we think there's this contrast between, I mean, it, how would it work? How could Paul be fool, fools in Christ and then they be wise in Christ? I mean, it's all topsy-turvy. Topsy-turvy, who says that? Um, but so he's kind of mocking their position of having this worldly wisdom and yet claiming to be in Christ um, and saying if you want to talk about being in Christ then you should be fools like us because the foolishness is the wisdom of God. Is that alright? Cool. Let's stop there then. Um, we are going to sing a song and then we're going to have a further reflection in light of what we've been thinking about. And we're going to sing Salvation Belongs to Our God.